Well, law and order has certainly been turned on its head, ladies and gentlemen. We've seen this ever since the devolution of law and order during the Obama administration, even before that, we could say, but it really turned sharply against law and order after that time. Uh, we saw it with Trayvon Martin and a host of other cases and Michael Brown, and now more recently in the wake of the death of George Floyd, a chap who I've said many times on this show uh, certainly didn't deserve to die. I don't know anyone who deserves to die over minor stuff. There are those of us who think that no one deserves to die regardless of any affront that they may commit. I'm not one of those people. I do believe in the death penalty, but of course it's for narrowly defined cases. But what's going on in the country today is not justified by facts or common sense. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Dury and welcome to another episode of the National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of several ways. You can either go to the iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, depending which device you use, and simply search the NPO podcast and click subscribe. Or you can download the free Podbean app at either of those two locations, Podbean being the hosting service we use, and you can subscribe that way. Any way you subscribe, you will be notified whenever a new episode is uploaded Uh, to the web. You will also be able to leave reviews and make comments, and we please do ask that you leave reviews. We need your reviews and your support in order for the show to grow so we can continue to bring you these podcasts and potentially greater offerings, the use of a call in line, etc. So why am I jumping on the bandwagon of this, the law is on its head today? Well, because two things came to my attention today that I thought I would uh, highlight for you to put this in sharp focus. Antifa and BLM activists armed with rifles block traffic and assault drivers in Portland. I'd like to know what the hell is going on in Portland and how this became the epicenter for every leftist kook and communist organization that exists. And make no mistake, Antifa and Black Lives Matter are communist uber-leftist organizations. Black Lives Matter could give two hoots less about black lives and neither could Antifa care about equality and civil rights. A large group, I'm reading from an article in the Times, a large group of Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters clashed with police this week during a march in Portland, and at least one person was hospitalized for reasons that were not specified, according to the police. The confrontations between protesters and citizens happened in broad daylight on Wednesday and involved multiple people and separate cases. At least two of the incidents were captured on video, showing armed protesters getting into a conflict with two drivers who appeared to attempt to drive through their march. In one such incident, armed protesters surrounded a red interstate Dodge Chrysler, slashed the tires of the vehicle, broke the rear window, and held the driver hostage after accusing him of driving through their protest according to a video that was posted on a video-sharing platform, BitChute. Dispatchers with the Portland Police Bureau also said they received multiple calls from people that were driving in the area and got blocked by a crowd of protesters. One person said people in the crowd broke out their vehicle windows, damaged tires, and sprayed them with some type of irritant. For that, read Mace, which is also supposed to be illegal in all but the most diluted of concentrations for civilians. 
Police were called near North Interstate Avenue and North Killingsworth Street after someone reported that a pedestrian was hit by a car in relation to the protesters marching in the streets. Quote, as officers arrived, they did not find any pedestrians who claimed to have been struck. The large group had moved away, still walking in nearby streets, some openly carrying firearms. In another incident captured on video, a crowd of protesters mostly dressed in black and some carrying weapons are seen yelling at the driver of a red Ford pickup truck who was reportedly armed with a gun. A voice is heard yelling at the driver to put his gun down, which he appears to be following while also responding to one of the protesters to stop pointing his gun at him. You've got about five seconds to lower that effing weapon, the driver is heard yelling at the protester, who at first does not follow the order and continues to point his rifle at him. You point a weapon at me, the driver continued. It's unclear, according to the footage, about how the confrontation started. As the, after a brief verbal altercation, the unidentified driver gets back inside his truck after having exited it as he tries to leave the scene. But now the protesters surround the truck and kick his car, prompting him to get out of his truck again. As the driver exits his vehicle, protesters tackle him to the ground after he appears to draw his gun. Get the weapon! Get him on the ground! A voice is heard. Authorities in Portland said they are collecting as many statements as possible and now seeking more information from witnesses about the incidents. Now, I'd like to see if anyone of the protesters is actually arrested for this. I'd like to see what happened in the first confrontation where the windows were broken out, where people were beaten up, uh, where this chap was pulled out of his truck. He probably was ill-advised of him to get out of the truck. But I'd like to see what happens. Do you think anything's going to happen to these people? Or do you think they'll probably look to prosecute the man who tried to defend himself with his gun against these illegal protesters armed with rifles? If you're thinking the latter, you're probably right. I really don't see the authorities uh, prosecuting these protesters for kidnapping as they should. So what my point is, the people who choose to violate the law in protest of all these people who are getting involved in confrontations with the police, people who themselves... Uh, are not involved with the police because it didn't warrant police action. Uh, in the case of Breonna Taylor, who everyone likes to conveniently call up, you can hardly blame the police. How about blaming the people that were in the apartment with Breonna Taylor and took action which forced them, the police, to have to fire? George Floyd could have went quietly. He decided not to. I'm not justifying uh, his death, but generally most of these people bring their situations onto themselves. If they had just cooperated, none of this blameworthy conduct that they're seeking to assign to the police officers would have taken place. Duante Wright, that other chap who was wanted for aggravated robbery back in February, who was stopped by the police uh, for something innocuous, something about his registration. Uh, no harm would have come to him uh, had he not been wanted for armed robbery, and no harm would have come to him had he simply submitted to the handcuffs being placed on his wrist. No, when he realized that they knew who he was, that his warrant had popped, he tried to run and get away, and in, unfortunately, this caused an escalation of force where the officer inadvertently drew her firearm instead of her taser and fatally shot Dante Wright. Tragic, but again, the chain of events... 
were set in motion by the actions of the defendants, of the criminals. So to put all this on the police officers is simply wrong. Now, why do I mention all this? Well, because on the flip side, some very interesting things are happening. A federal grand jury has just indicted four former Minneapolis police officers, three that were with Derek Chauvin during the George Floyd incident and Derek Chauvin himself. Now, what's very interesting about this is that all four of these officers have been subjected to state charges. The other three officers are being tried separately from the Chauvin trial. They wanted to avoid any prejudicial uh, inference from, Chauvin, from being associated with Chauvin. Chauvin himself has been tried and convicted and faces up to 40 years in prison. And this is very important for you to understand as I bring in the backstage uh, or the, uh, the backstory of all this. So we have these other officers who face time. Now, they won't face probably as much time um, as, <clears throat> as Chauvin faced. But let's read on. A federal grand jury has indicted four Minneapolis, former Minneapolis police officers um, involved in the arrest of George Floyd, saying they violated his constitutional rights when he was restrained face down. So this will be a civil rights violation. Derek Chauvin, Thomas Lane, Jay Kuhn, and Tao Thao were named in the indictment. Although Tao, Chauvin, Kung were charged with uh, violating Floyd's right to be free from unreasonable seizure and excessive force, the four officers were also charged with failure to provide Floyd with medical care. Now that's interesting because I didn't realize that there was a federal charge for that. So there's something new you can learn every day. Now, we already know that Chauvin was convicted last month of murder and manslaughter. He's awaiting sentencing. He'll be going to a maximum security prison. The new charges come in addition to the state's cases, which means that all four could face trials in federal court. Uh, Tao, Kung, and Lane face trial on the state charges in August, and they're free on bond. Now, we all know the story of George Floyd. We know what was seen on the tape. I'm not saying it was the proudest moment for law enforcement. But why the federal charges and why now? Now, why do I say that? Well, because there are standards that the Justice Department has set for themselves. We've seen this in the past. Uh, federal charges are something that usually are very well considered. Recently, in the Eric Garner case, um, a lot of people like to blame Bill Barr for ultimately making the decision not to charge Officer Pantaleo with civil rights violations in the death of Eric Garner. But in all fairness, uh, several different Department um, of Justice heads, several different attorney generals, Eric Holder, Loretta Lynch, Jeff Sessions, all looked at these things. Uh, and finally, it fell into Barr's lap. None of them made a decision. Holder... Lynch certainly had all the facts. In fact, while Lynch was the attorney was the attorney general of the United States, the Brooklyn uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District, who has jurisdiction over Staten Island, after an exhaustive review of the case, they felt that the case didn't pass muster because they felt that there wasn't sufficient evidence. Because, uh, in fact, I'll find it for you right here. They talked about this in detail. Um, Richard Donahue, 
was the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District, said there was simply not enough evidence to charge Pantaleo with civil rights violations beyond a reasonable doubt, despite Garner's takedown on a Staten Island sidewalk being captured on video. Quote, as has been widely reported, Mr. Garner stated, I can't breathe. This is the U.S. attorney making this statement. But I would point out that he made this statement only after he fell onto the sidewalk and after Officer Pantaleo had released his grip from Mr. Garner's neck. Significantly, Officer Pantaleo was not engaged on a chokehold on Mr. Garner when he said he could not breathe, and neither Officer Pantaleo nor any other officer applied a chokehold to Mr. Garner after he first said he could not breathe. Garner suffered an asthma attack and went into cardiac arrest while he was being restrained, the city medical examiner said, ruling his death a homicide caused by a chokehold that was a significant initial factor. Well, if you want to start taking the position that every time physical force is required to be used by police because the people that they're trying to arrest are resisting, and that this struggle now causes them to succumb to pre-existing conditions, you've really opened Pandora's box, and you might as well just forget about law enforcement in this country or ever enforcing the law again. So that's a recent case. But there are other standards that the DOJ has to adhere to, and this is extremely interesting. Let me explain something to you. Gerald Lynch is a former top federal prosecutor. He teaches at Columbia Law School and said that federal prosecutors have increasingly been taking second looks at state cases. This is an article written from many years ago, particularly those involving organized crime cases, drugs, and publicized civil rights cases. Quote, one has to wonder whether a lot of these cases get taken up because of media attention, as opposed to prosecutors asking whether the federal government has a legitimate interest in pursuing it. The Department of Justice has guidelines that federal prosecutors must follow in weighing a state case. This is not a quote uh, of Lynch. This is me quoting the article's author who's talking about the backdrop. They must ask whether the original trial was affected by prosecutorial incompetence, corruption, or jury tampering. Was the verdict rendered in blatant disregard of the evidence? Can federal prosecutors introduce crucial proof that was barred from the state case? Now, in commenting on the case that this article that I'm quoting from was originally written about, Uh, Eric Friedman, who teaches constitutional law at Hofstra University, said it's difficult to believe that this is such a situation. And I would like to echo those words. Based on everything I just told you about the Department of Justice's own guidelines, how could they suggest, in light of Derek Chauvin being convicted, how could they say that the trial was affected by prosecutorial uh, incompetence, corruption, or jury tampering? How could they say, given that he was convicted of murder and manslaughter, that the victim was rendered in blatant disregard of the evidence? I have told you on this uh, show that I would believe the jury's verdict was in blatant disregard of the evidence because there was no evidence of a significant nature to support his conviction because of the issue of 
causation, as I've explained many times before on this podcast. There was not sufficient evidence to prove that Chauvin's knee on his neck was the proximate cause of George Floyd's death. The issue was not whether his knee was on his neck. Of course it was. It was in the video. But his his knee could be on his neck from Natal Doomsday. If the medical examiner says there were no bruises to his neck and that that wasn't the proximate cause of his death, it's not a factor in getting a murder conviction. Likewise, can the federal prosecutors introduce crucial proof that was barred from the state case? I don't know of any proof that was barred from the state case. They were given great latitude. As it regards the other three officers, the state is pursuing charges. So while the federal government might be within their rights to pursue charges against those officers if they fail to get a conviction in the state, we don't know that that's going to be the case because they haven't had a chance to try the case yet. So that's really putting the court, uh, the cart before the horse. Now, it seems to me that this smacks of double jeopardy. Now, of course, it isn't double jeopardy technically, but when you have a situation where an officer has already been tried in state court and he's been convicted and he's going to be sentenced for a very, very lengthy period of time, to now pile on and add a federal civil rights prosecution to the case seems a little much. What are you supposed to do with Derek Chauvin? After he finishes his 40 years in state prison in Minneapolis, you're going to transfer him to federal correction facility when he's in his 80s? Or do you plan on having him go to federal prison sooner and everything run concurrent? Are, are the sentences going to be run concurrent? Or are they going to be run consecutive? I mean, it's almost ridiculous to talk about when we're dealing with 40-plus year sentences. You at least have to allow for the state case to reach fruition. In fact, I'm not aware of many cases where the federal government has stepped in in the wake of a state conviction. Almost always, when federal prosecutors step in, it's in the wake of an acquittal in a state case or perhaps a failure to indict in the first place. That's not the case here. There was a conviction. And there were indictments of the other three officers. And in all probability, there will be convictions of them as well, because it's a highly charged case. And you've already had the city of Minneapolis foolishly settling for $27 million for the death of a man who couldn't earn $27 million in 27 lifetimes, let alone one lifetime. It's against all the laws of logic and common sense. So this is the interesting contrast we have for ourselves. We have the powers that be in terms of our prosecutorial uh, armies, both at the federal and the state level, pulling out all the stops to convict police officers at the drop of a hat. The instant one of them puts their foot wrong, the hammer is falling. Officer Kim Potter, who mistakenly killed Duante Wright because she reached for her taser and pulled her sidearm instead, this automatically has resulted in her being arrested. I don't even know how they did that. There wasn't even time to convene the grand jury. She resigned the next day, and within a week, they announced that she was facing charges. Yet, 
as I said when I opened the show, in Portland, Oregon, we have people rioting, we have people acting to displace lawful authority, and just protest in the street and block traffic, armed with rifles, kidnapping people who attempted to drive through their protests, innocent people, slashing their tires, breaking windows, holding people hostage, accusing them of driving through their protest. Almost like a second self-appointed lawful authority. Nothing is going to be done to these people who had this protest, who broke the windows of this person's car, who slashed this person's tires, who held this person hostage, who attacked another man who decided to pull out his own gun when they stopped him with their rifles when he was trying to drive through the protest that they had no authority uh, to engage in or block off the streets in. The people who tried to defend themselves against this blatant uh, act of lawlessness, these are the people who are going to be prosecuted. These are the people that law enforcement, or in the way of the prosecutors, not the police, are going to bring all of their armor to bear against, not the people who were the proximate cause of the incident in the first place. This is the upside-down world we're living in, where the criminals now are the heroes and the police are the criminals. And this, from the people who are telling us that we have to defund the police, the people who are running around Portland with rifles stopping innocent civilians driving, holding them hostage for having the, the temerity to drive through their unlawful protest. These are the people that say we don't need police. These are the people that say we have to disband police departments in favor of this yet-defined entity that's going to take over the cause of making sure that there is public order. And I have said to you in the past, this smacks very dangerously to me of a federal police force. If you think that your local police departments are not responsive enough to you now, wait till you see how unresponsive a distant, far-removed federal bureaucracy in Washington is to your local needs in Keokuk, Iowa, or any city for that matter. New York City Police Department is probably the most scrutinized law enforcement agency in the United States. And it's a big agency, but it's unique to the city of New York. The people that run it are accountable to the people of the city of New York. And when the people of the city of New York become dissatisfied with the police department, a great deal of pressure is exerted on City Hall and then in turn on the police department and changes, whether they're justified or not, are effectuated. Good luck with that if you become dissatisfied with this federal police force that I think these people on the left are seriously considering. If you don't like what happens in the city of New York, you're not going to get any response from Washington. They're going to tell you that's the way it is. That's our national policy. You are no different than anyone else. And that's what you've got. Like I've said many times, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.